There is nothing like seeing the face of someone who is the first in their family to ever pursue higher education. You know, when they have that understanding that this is really going to work, I'm going to get a job on the other end of this. How can a set of skills lead you down the path to success? That's what we're setting out to answer on the EdUp Canada podcast. I'm your host, Michael Sangster. Join me as we unpack how leaders around the world have taken training and skills and turned that into a lasting career. Now let's learn together. Welcome back. I'm Michael Sangster, and this is the Ed Up Canada podcast. Thank you for joining us again this week for another edition of the podcast where we try and learn together. So with that in mind, I'm especially excited this week to be joined by a gentleman who's become a friend, but as a colleague, is the president of CQ in the United States, or CEO, I believe. And I'll let Jason do an introduction of himself, but uh, Jason and I have been doing some work together over the past year between the CQ organization and the, the National Association of Career Colleges here in Canada. And I'm excited to have him on as a former congressman. He's got a lot of interesting uh, thoughts and is become in his time with CQ, what I can tell is a very passionate advocate for the sector and what's going on. So Jason, why don't you take a moment and introduce yourself? Glad to be here. Thank you, Michael. And CQ is an acronym, C-E-C-U, and it stands for Career Education Colleges and Universities. And we are the national association representing private post-secondary career schools in the United States. And we have about 850 campuses in the United States that we count among our members. And of course, we work very closely with you, our Canadian counterpart, and uh, share information and, and have a good alliance and working relationship as well. Yeah, and we're all obviously very excited about that. We had a great meeting up in uh, in Kansas City this year. We're looking forward to some of us going to be joining you next year at your event in uh, Indianapolis, right? Indianapolis, home of the Indianapolis 500. And we're looking forward to that and then having a much larger joint conference in Las Vegas the year after. And uh, in a couple of weeks from now, we're going to be all headed up to Montreal, Quebec, with both of our organizations coming together. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing some of your, your members from Texas and California in Montreal in November to see how they deal with the weather. But uh, it should be a good time. We might even be able to take you in a hockey game. Yeah, it's, it's it's fun to travel around and, and uh, be able to see the different issues that are important to memberships. And what, of course, you and I have found is the similarities are much greater than any differences. We, the, the issues that we have to deal with are very much the same. The perceptions of the sector, the political circumstances are very different uh, between Canada and the United States, of course, but the the type of work that our schools do, the programs, the backgrounds of the students, all very similar. So it, it's really been a good partnership, I think, for both of us. We joke around about the cities we visit, but the learnings. It's funny, you visit these cities at these conferences, but you don't leave a convention center for a couple of days because your head's down actually doing a lot of work. That's and right. Sometimes it's hard to come home and explain that you were working. Uh, and before we get serious, I will say we did have a little fun with the World Needs More Canada party up in Kansas City. And it was good to see Canadian beer being served in, a, in an institute in, 
in the establishment in, in Kansas City. We had a really good time. And I know the members who, from our association came up did learn a lot over the couple of days. I'm looking forward to Montreal. So I'm going I'm to jump in because you mentioned the difference between our country and the, and the similarities. And this podcast is about what's going on in career education, but it's also about just in people's own individual pathways and the ways they got to where they did. Because it's important to understand in our sector that, that there's no straight line. And it's quite interesting because our students are different sometimes and we get older students and single parents and, and it's the different generations. So there's lessons that can be learned. You've been a very successful individual. You've done a lot of interesting stuff. So I thought as a former congressman, what's a job or a skill set that you held in your career or in your life that you never thought would help you when you got to Congress? For me, it has always been the planning and the goal setting aspect to be able to say, you know, several years from now, this is what I want to be doing and figure out a path to get there. And I've done it through throughout my life. And, and you know, it, it, most people who, you know, have various accomplishments have set out to do something along those lines. And, and often the path is never straight, right? You know, you, you have to divert, you come to a Y in the road and you have to decide whether to go right or left. But uh, I've always kind of thought about wh what do I want my path to be? Uh, where do I want to go? And uh, like I said, usually it doesn't end up being the straight path and you don't end up exactly where you thought you would be, but you're heading in the right direction and the ability to not. And I think this is an issue with younger folks today with, with millennials and so forth. You know, the, the ability to understand instant gratification is not always attainable. You're not going to get exactly what you want today. You're not going to be what you want to be in your career tomorrow. You're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to, you know, use the phrase, pay your dues. You're going to have to uh, go through the educational process, the the learning in the workforce, and, and you know build the relationships that are going to lead to ultimate success and getting you where you want to go. But understanding that you are going to have to work for it. Very rarely is something just going to fall into your lap without you having to put in the work. And neither one of us had a pathway that had us leading an organization talking about career education, talking about career development. That was not on the roadmap. That was not on the bingo card, as the kids say today. So it's it's interesting, your view of it, of the goal setting and pathways, but you can't be rigid. Yeah, you I, give yourself I, room to go. I, I tell this story quite often, but I think it's instructive, especially for folks going through the educa higher education system now. As I, w I went to Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida, and I was in my last class on my last day as a political science major. And I had already applied to law school in Pennsylvania, where I was from, and was going to do that. And I had a summer job lined up before I started law school in the fall. I was going to go home uh, to Pennsylvania. And as I was leaving the class, my last one, my car was already packed. My professor looked up at me and said, hey, Jason, I, I want to talk to you about something. Can you come back here? So I went back and she said, there's a political campaign going on. A guy's running for U.S. Congress. He probably isn't going to win. He, he's running against an incumbent, but they're looking for people to help. 
and I think you would be good at it, so you might want to think about it. And I explained to her everything I just said to you. Well, I actually have everything lined up, and it's, you know, I appreciate you thinking about me, but I don't think I can do it. And she said, you know, all of those other things you can do anyway. What this presents you is an opportunity that is not replicatable. This is something that is unique, and, and uh, it, it, it's, you, you, you really should think about it, was her message. And I did think about it in the 10 minutes it took me to walk back to my car, and I decided I was going to stay in Tallahassee and work on that campaign. And to make a long story short, the guy ended up winning. He became a congressman. He brought me up to Washington, D.C., and I served on his staff and assigned me health care as an issue, and I ended up making health care my career as a result and uh, have been a executive at two large healthcare companies in addition to running for political office myself successfully. And none of that would have happened had I not had that conversation. And then on top of all of that, during that campaign, I met my wife, my, my still wife, and we've been married for 27 years. We have two adult children. And, you know, I just think about how my entire life would have been completely different if that professor does not stop me on the way out the door. It doesn't mean it would have been better or worse, but it would certainly have been very different. And uh, that's just when we talk about taking a divergent path and, you know, taking a, a reasonable risk. Don't go crazy with risk, but, you know, sometimes you have to take a little bit of risk to, to move forward in life. Yeah, no, I completely agree. That's quite a story. That's how you ended up with the wife, too. That's It's quite interesting. That's where you met. Yes. That's incredible. So, um I had the pleasure of being on your podcast last year, and I highly recommend it. And we'll talk about it at the end uh, for anybody interested in, in career education, politics, data analysis. Lots of really interesting people on your on your show, polling people. Um, but we talked a lot about politics. We talked about Canada because I was your guest. So tell me, I'm I'm interested in your role. What's the biggest issue you're facing in, in Washington these these days? And you talked about a pathway. Do you see a pathway to success on that issue right now, or is it still working its way out for you? In the U.S., we, of course, have a federal system where our Department of Education uh, is largely the leader in federal policy related to regulation of career schools. And we represent, as you know, generally for-profit career schools, not exclusively. We do have some nonprofit members as well. But of those 850 campuses I mentioned, all across the country, we're in 47 states, 46 states, and Puerto Rico. And uh, there is a bias for some against the for-profit sector, not just in higher education, but things like charter schools and just the the idea of of a for-profit involvement in education generally. And that is often from the Democratic side. So we, in the states, you know, you have basically a two-party system, Republicans and Democrats. And whenever Democrats are in control, it gets much more challenging for our schools because on the regulatory side, the federal government wants to regulate our schools. And then in Congress, when Democrats are in control, they, they pursue legislation that is adversarial to us and uh, to our schools and we have to fight those battles on behalf of our students and what we argue is we're in the process of uh, you know the president president biden passed a two trillion dollar infrastructure package so we're building 
roads and bridges, airports, locks and dams, offshore uh, wind turbines. And, and, you know, if you're going to rebuild America, North, even North America, you're going to need our workers. You're going to need truck drivers. You're going to need HVACs technicians. You're going to need auto technicians. You're going to need the people who are servicing your airplanes. And I always use the example, when you're on an airplane and you see the aviation techs outside working on the plane, you want two things. You want them to be really good at what they do, and you want there to be a lot of them. And that's Mm -hmm. what our schools do. And I think politically that's the disconnect that exists is there's a lack of recognition of how important the graduates of our schools are to the American economy and to the work that's being done. And if regulation goes too far and makes it impossible for our schools to operate, or at least more difficult to operate, that's going to have a very detrimental impact on the American workforce. Yeah, I, don't, I agree with you completely. I'm reminded of the old story you talked about aviation. Uh, reminded of the old story from the head of Canada's military, General Hillier, who, who you met in Ottawa last year, who talked about all he wanted in the military was brand new planes and really old pilots, guys with a lot of experience. And it's 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 funny, it, from our meetings, we've, we've come to some conversations across the border around aviation maintenance, and we've got some colleges working together to try and build six or seven new institutes to to train more aviation maintenance people. So some of the work that we've been doing is actually possibly paying off for the, the workforce and the economies of both of our nations. I hope, hopefully it comes together. So um, in, interested, you, you, you've managed in your role. We've, we've had a similar pathway of a couple of years, a bit two and a half years for me in the role, similar for you. Uh, you're the chief advocate now lobbying for career training in the U.S. Um, but you spend a lot of time in colleges. I see it. You're out all the time meeting people. If you were looking at a student today, what would you say would be the primary reason you should look at career education? People choose their education for different reasons. And I think one of the problems has been the stigma associated with career education, uh, at least in the United States. And we're moving away from this idea that everyone needs to pursue a four-year education, go to, you know, your traditional setting, college and universities. And I described our our programs. And in addition to that, we, we have nursing, the allied health professions as well, cosmetology, culinary programs. And these are programs where you are going to get a job when you finish. And if you determine that that's your interest and that's your, your skill set, there is no better place to go to get the education and the training that you need, in our case, to turn it around fairly quickly and get you out in the workforce working and and bringing home a salary that you're going to be able to live on in a way that if you were to have pursued a four-year education, you know, it, it would have been a very different experience. So I think moving away from this idea that it has to be that same traditional pathway that we've always looked at as, as the path to higher education for the past hundred years and recognizing that not only do individuals benefit by being able to pursue their talent and their skill set and whatever their life circumstances are, because our schools operate around the schedules of people who are going through transition in life, veterans returning from the workforce, single moms, people who are being downsized from their jobs, 
unhappy for whatever reason, want to change in their career, whatever their life leads them to. And in order to finance their education and make it work for their families, often they're working other jobs while they're Mm -hmm. going through school. So we have a schedule at our schools that fits those unique life circumstances in a way that does not, it's not the case for the private and and public system uh, of higher ed. So uh, that's something that people would definitely want to consider is how does this fit into your life circumstances? Are you going to be able to make it work both financially and with your managing your other commitments for your family and your job? And then what what are you going to get on the other end of it? Are you going to be able to get a skill set that you're going to be able to find a lasting employment opportunity? We, we, it's a, it is incredible how similar our, our thinking becomes as we spend more time with these colleges. And I, I use the words agile and nimble. That's what our colleges are. They turn on a dime. They work closer with employers to make sure they're training for the skills that are actually needed for someone to go be successful in a short time frame. And what's become my favorite line is back to school is, is Thursday in our colleges. Back to school is not the Tuesday after Christmas. It's not the first Monday in September. It's a Thursday. It might be Saturday afternoon at a trucking college when they get together for the first orientation. And that, that flexibility to go do something quickly could be a six-week program, could be a two-year program, but to get back to work, it might be work. I was talking to a college the other day about their program, and I said, what are the lengths of it? And, then, and he looked at me and said, it's six months, 12 months, 24. Same program, but it's based on their lifestyle, what they can do for time. Do they, are they out of work and can go in six months? Are they a single mom that's also working or are they a family person? And that just the length of the program changes. And it's interesting to see how that works. And the, the thing I've been struck, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, but it's, to me, it's the closeness to the employers who are looking for the employees at the far end. And how many of the students leave the colleges with a job in hand already because of that placement time they spent inside an employer's office? When you go to these job fairs, I'm sure you've you've seen dozens of them as I have, and you'll see 70 employers lined up, and you know whatever it might be. Let let's say it's one of these allied health uh, job fairs, and and people walk around and they're getting numerous uh, opportunities. They're learning about their potential and and their value and and, and how high demand those professions are. And uh, there is nothing like seeing the face of someone who is the first in their family to ever pursue higher education. You know, when they have that understanding that this is really going to work, I'm going to get a job on the other end of this. And I mentioned aviation technicians. Uh, you know, those folks almost always get recruited while they are in school. You know, they they finish the program, but then there is a job waiting for them on the other end. And, and that is the case with, with a huge portion of the type of careers that our schools represent. I attended a graduation ceremony in Toronto a couple of weeks ago, and, and there was about 900 students graduating. But there was about, oh, it had to be at least six or 7,000 people there in a massive hall. And I looked at the, the owner of the college, and we were having a good conversation before we both made our remarks. And I said, the size of the crowd, you don't limit the, the crowd. And he said, no, this is the biggest moment that's ever happened in that family. No one's ever graduated from anything in that case. And, and, and it might be the mother. They want their kids to see what's going on. I, so I went out and I was chatting with one of the, a couple of the graduates. And one of them said, I said, can I meet your family? Nine family members at the graduation. It was one of the most incredible scenes. It's hard not to be. 
uh, inspired and become extremely passionate about what, what these colleges do. And I, I was going to ask you about that because you're on the road a lot. You're obviously inspired by what you're doing because you're away from family a lot. I am inspired in the same way that you described to see the faces of the people who are sacrificing so much to get this credential and get out in the workforce and support their families in a way that they were not able to as effectively before. But it also does irritate me, maybe more than irritate me, when I think about the political issues that you and I talked about a little while ago. Um, because I, I see the life-changing opportunity that our schools are providing. I see the passion that exists among the faculty and the administrators to work with these students, to make sacrifices in their own right, to serve the students and make sure they get uh, going in the right direction when, when they're in school, uh, getting to know their names. And, and when if they don't show up for class, giving them a phone call and saying, hey, is everything okay? What, what's going on? We, we missed you today. That doesn't happen in other types of educational settings, at least not in America. And uh, it, it's very frustrating to me that our regulators and our policymakers don't see that side of it, that they, you know, the ones who take the time to visit the school you can see the light bulb go off and, and their minds start to change a little bit. But um, for those that just sit in their office in Washington, D.C. And, and think about their own opinion on what a for-profit education looks like, uh, I, do get, I do get irritated when, when I think about that as I visit the campuses. That's, that's, that's a really good, good point. We're going through a bit of a, a thorny issue right now with international students in Canada. And we're an easy target. And it is irritating. And, it, and some of the issues around housing and so social supports and mental health supports around those international students. We currently have 900,000 international students in Canada against a population of 40 million. Um, that's a very, very large, significant number. But they're not in our institutions, but we take a remarkable amount of the blame. They're, they're in the colleges, they're in the universities, but we're the easy target on those issues. But when we get people in, when we get elected officials and media into our colleges, and I see the level of investment, the quality of education that, that comes from those institutions that, that are our members, but the, 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 the value of the investment, like millions of dollars in equipment in many of these institutions. If you look at a truck college, they might have three, four million dollars worth of equipment on the, on the driveway. Never mind the building and the classrooms. In some of the cases, they have dorm rooms to help people uh, dedicate the 16 weeks to the program and it, it does get a little irritating i like the use of your of your word because we, it, it inspires me to keep going and do that next meeting and do one more but man it does get a little frustrating some days and you're right about the investment when you visit these schools and, and you see the incredible technology that healthcare students get to work with and if you're a truck driving student you obviously need a fleet of trucks to train these folks. You know, if, if you're uh, aviation techs or, or auto techs, you're going to need cars and airplanes. You're going to need a huge, you know, 10,000 above square foot facility to house these folks. So we, we have uh, facilities that are much more than that, 70, 80,000 square feet across the country. And that's something I think that gets lost among policymakers also is the huge investment that goes into making this a setting to get an appropriate education and the ability of these schools to train students in state-of-the-art 
circumstances that they're going to be able to then transition immediately into the workforce. And from people who've actually done the job, they're being trained by people who are either doing it currently somewhere else and are training a couple of days a week or have retired or moved on because they want to train. That to me is one of the things that I love watching is they're actually dealing with someone who's not in the theoretical world. They've done the job and we, we, whether it's culinary or in our case, personal support workers that we've trained so many of these healthcare workers in Canada, you cannot teach the program unless you've done the pro unless you actually have done the job for a certain amount of time. And I think that's incredibly valuable skill and experience they get. So it's interesting to me. I, I, another question, just to kind of to go sideways a little bit, but something you've learned in your career. We, we say we're going to leave some lessons in, the, in, these, in, these, in these meetings. Something else in your career, uh, a piece of advice you've learned, if you'd taken it sooner, maybe it would have uh, resulted in you finding more success. Something if you, you wish you'd done that sooner couple of things that are related, and it, it and I always talk about this when I speak to young people, especially like college campuses or high school students. Um, be nice to everybody, but key, and it's so much easier now with social media, Michael, than when you and I were younger, when none of this existed, and, and your way of keeping in touch was through letters, you know, sending letters to people through the mail, and or maybe seeing them once a year at a Christmas party, but uh, now with social media, it's so much easier to just keep in touch because I say this to every class. I say, you look around right now. I said, there are some superstars in here. There are people that you, maybe you're that person, right? Where everyone in the class is going to say, hey, I went, I went to school with that person. And, you know, we all know people from our background that are like that. But the problem is you generally cannot predict who those people are. And you... We are going to wish when you get 15, 20 years down the road, you're going to wish you kept in touch with that person uh, for whatever reason, you know, business or just profession, you know, professional or personal. Um, so just having a positive relationship, not burning bridges, being nice to everybody and not trying to predict who the star is going to be and cozying up to them, you know, for your future relationship, because you can't. And people, some people that you think are going to be stars are not. And some people, that you would have written off are going to surprise you. So just taking that to the next level of sort of, you know, I was in politics, so I look at it as constituent service, but you and I are both leading membership organizations. It's the same thing with membership. Uh, That's your first priority as a leader is to make sure that your membership, whatever that might be, your clientele, as a business, your employees, uh, if you're a CEO, your constituents as an elected official, but whatever the group is that you're serving, that's your priority. And sometimes it is um, inconvenient when a member will call and say, hey, I have a question. Can you research something for me? And, I'm, and I think, well, you know, I'm in the middle of four other things that are but that's your priority. And I tell this to our team, too, at CQ. Uh, serve the membership first because they're paying dues to be a part of this organization. They have an expectation that their concerns are going to be heard. And when they do ask for help, their expectation is you're going to help them quickly. And in any business, in any setting, I think that's just a good attitude is the people around you, the people that rely upon you, put them first, even when it's personally inconvenient for you to do so. 
That, that's really good advice for people. And I really like to keep in touch because you don't know. And and you never know where somebody's going to go. But just the be, the be nice. That is a challenge these days. We all watch a world that's borderline toxic some weeks. And it doesn't take much to just be nice and just have a bit of personality with someone and show them that that, that you like them and that you want to spend the time with them. I've, I've taken to the last couple of years, when I'm with people, the phone is in the pocket now. The phone stays in the pocket and you have a conversation with somebody and you make sure you connect and you listen to them. And it's, it's hard because there's so many tugs and pulls, uh, but you really got to spend the moment with people and, and figure out what they need. So, and you've got a strong team. You can see the team and they, your team likes each other too. It's mm-hmm. fun to watch them because they actually all like each other. And the way that, that Jason and I stay in touch is we, we, we send hockey jerseys back and forth to each mm-hmm. other across North America because we're both hockey fans, so I, I got to touch on hockey because you live in Florida and uh, you've got more professional hockey teams there than Toronto does, uh, which is good <laughs> because they have none. Florida has two, right? Florida has two. Pretty successful recently, both of them. Very successful teams. And, and in Canada, the one thing that unites us is that we don't like the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, so we were unabashed at that. But... Um, we're looking forward to going going to a hockey game in, in, in Montreal in a couple of weeks with you, uh, probably about the time that this airs. So any last thoughts for the group and, and any thoughts for what's coming up in Montreal? Well, you know, I grew up in uh, Pittsburgh and when, when I was growing up, the Penguins were not very good. And of course, in the mid 80s, when I was in high school, they drafted Mario Lemieux because they had the first pick in the draft. And not only did he saved the franchise from the way he played on the ice as one of the all-time greats, probably the second greatest player of all time. But he saved the franchise through his business acumen as well, which is sort of a lesson for others too. You know, a lot of athletes don't do very well after their athletic journey. And um, as one example, you know, he, he, he bought the franchise. He revitalized it. They've, of course, been extraordinarily successful uh, in as he owned the team. He has since, I think, sold the team a couple of years ago. But you know, they won three Stanley Cups after he retired as a, as a, and he was the owner. So, I think that's a good life lesson, especially for folks going through transition. Is that uh, even if you think what your purpose on this earth was for. Uh, has termed out or whatever has happened there, that there are other ways that you can make a difference and you can actually be even more successful in as your life transitions over time. So just keep going, keep moving forward, and keep trying to make a difference. I love it. I think it's, it's a great message, and it reminds me of the way you and I came together. Was One of our members said, let's, let's get you guys on a phone call, and Fast to partner, fast to friendship. We figured it out. There's something here. Let's just go do it. We partnered up and we got to work and it's worked out really well, I think, for both organizations. And I look forward to more. So Jason Altmeyer, thank you for joining us today. Look forward to seeing you again in person and uh, ask everybody to take a look at what we're doing. Join us again in a couple of weeks for the next one. And uh, thanks for coming. Thank you, Michael. Good to be with you. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Ed Up Canada podcast. We release new episodes regularly, so make sure you hit that subscribe button so you know when they are officially out. If you love this episode, please leave a four or five star review wherever you listen to your podcasts so that others can also discover how a set of skills can lead to success. 
Thanks for learning with us.